talk about marriage, when I say marriage, what images come to your mind? What do you think of when I say marriage? For me, as I talk about it, I think about my own marriage, but when I think about images of marriage, I think specifically of my wedding day and the pictures that were taken on my wedding day. Now, for those of you who are married, I don't know if you remember your wedding day or not, but I do not remember much of my wedding day. And my wife would affirm that that's true for her as well, so I'm not getting myself in trouble right now. But our wedding day is kind of a blur. It was all these people. They said lots of nice things to us. I'm sure I, I'm sure I received some wonderful advice from people on that day. And we had lots of different things that took place and, and all kinds of things to remember. But really, the only things I remember had to do with the pictures. I remember showing up at the church that day to be married and being told by my mother-in-law that I was late. <laughs> which I ironically then went and sat in a room for a couple hours and did nothing before we took pictures. And when I came out to take pictures, there was this crazy old dude that was taking our picture. He was a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, or he had been tipping back on some cough syrup before we started, okay? He was goofy. He didn't remember anybody's name. He started giving nicknames to everybody in the bridal party. I remember he leaned into one of the guys. He started calling him Bart Starr. That was one of my guys that was in the wedding, and he tried to straighten his shoulders out, and as soon as he backed away, Bart Starr leaned into me and said, are you paying this guy in Jack Daniels? Like, what's going on with this guy? And I would have thought at that moment, we're not getting any good wedding pictures. But when we were done, we had some decent wedding pictures. By God's grace, somehow this took place. And if I want to remember my wedding day, I go back to those pictures. And I brought a couple today to show you uh, wedding pictures here. There's a picture of my wife and I on that day. If you didn't know us, you'd just see a bride and groom there. But when I look at that picture, that picture tells a story. And I think that's one of the fabulous things about pictures is they tell a story. And for me, when I look at that, it reminds me that on that day, I made a covenant before God with that woman. We made promises to one another about how we would love one another. And we failed in some of those promises by God's grace. We have been selfish at moments, believe it or not. We've disagreed about things in moments, believe it or not. But I remember those promises that day. I remember when I see that picture, I looked at it this week. I remember seeing my bride come walking in. We met together in the auditorium before the ceremony or anything happened. It was just the two of us. I remember that moment where we got to see each other, and she was this radiant bride. And so that picture tells that story for me. I brought another picture I'll show you. And if you just look at it, it just looks like a, a bridal party, a bunch of folks that are dressed up. You probably figure out that there's at least a wedding taking place if you didn't know anything about it because of the beautiful gal in the middle. But when I look at it, there's a lot of stories there. It's each one of those people played a role in our lives to become the people we were on that day. And for some of those people, not all those people, but for some of those people, they've kept their commitment of holding us accountable to the vows that we made that day. And they've encouraged us in our marriage since. Not everybody's done that, but several of those folks have done that. And so that picture tells a story. It's one of the wonderful things about pictures is that they tell a story. And I want to ask you today, those of you who are married, if we took a snapshot of your marriage, not your wedding day, but if we took a snapshot of your marriage today, what story would it tell? What would you see if I, I took a shot right now, and, and there'd be a couple people there, and maybe some kids, maybe not some kids, maybe a dog, maybe not a dog, all that kind of stuff, but what story does it tell? And for some people, maybe your story is, you know, romantic bliss, and you've never had a fight, and it's been wonderful, and you got married on Saturday. It's awesome. <laughs> and maybe for some of you, you have a story, though, of fulfilled dreams, that your marriage has become everything that you thought it would be, and maybe some of you, you have a a story of a biblical marriage of a husband leading in the home and a wife submitting to his leadership. And even when there are problems, you see grace and putting the other person first. And maybe some of you have got a story of, of great friendship with one another. And on a daily basis, you get to know each other better and learn new things about each other because you're changing. You're always changing. Or maybe some of you, your story is one of intimate love and passion. And you are just, you're lovers with one another. And maybe some of you, your story's different. Maybe it's a story of unfulfilled dreams. 
Maybe your marriage isn't what you thought it would become or what you promised it would become on that day. If we were to take a picture of your marriage, some of you, you'd smile on the picture, but inside there's something missing. Something happened along the way, and now there's a dryness there. For some of you, if you were honest, your story that your marriage would tell is of two roommates living together. Practically speaking, you function well. You get things done that need to be done, but there's just something missing. And for some people, your story might be terrible. It might be that you think of your marriage as one of the worst decisions you ever made. Maybe it's been constant tension, constant strife. Maybe the picture's about to be torn in two. Maybe it has been torn in two. And it's broken. Now, here's the big question for all of us. Does your marriage tell the story, if we were to take a picture of it, does it tell the story of the gospel? And did you know that it was supposed to? Because some people think that marriage is just a, a thing that we do together because we're going to be happy together, that we're going to love each other, we're going to grow old together. But did you know that God intends for it to be way more than that? In fact, those things, if they happen, are just really sob byproducts of what his original intention is for your marriage. It's that it would paint a picture of the gospel. Not completely, you don't redeem your spouse, but in an element, it's a picture of someone intentionally giving their lives for the sake of someone else. Someone that's broken, someone that's messed up, someone that many times doesn't even deserve to receive the love that you're offering. And you think about the gospel story and what it is and how Jesus Christ made an intentional decision to leave heaven, come to earth for broken, messed up people so they could come into relationship, be reconciled. Some of your marriages are stories of reconciliation. So they could be reconciled to God the Father. And did you know that that's the desire that God has for our marriages? That they would be a picture, a glimpse of an element of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And married people, today what I want you to ask yourself as we talk through this passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to ask yourself, if you were to take a picture of my marriage today, what would it tell? What would it say? And be honest with yourself. If you have your Bible, it's going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll start reading in verse 22. I invite you to turn with me, if you brought a Bible, to Ephesians chapter 5. If you're looking in the New Testament, you're trying to find it, it's or Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And so if you're in Galatians or Philippians, you're close. It's right in the middle there. Ephesians chapter 5, what this is, is a letter that Paul wrote to a group of folks that he helped start this church. And he loved these people dearly. You see it in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, when he's leaving this church, and he's going on to continue to do what God's called him to do, and he's with these elders, and they're praying together, and he starts weeping. And he's weeping as he warns these elders. One of their responsibilities is to guard the church from false teachers so they wouldn't be led astray by things that are not true, that people that are actually not trying to connect them to Jesus but have a different agenda. And he's weeping over the fact that he knows this is going to happen. And it might even be some of them that do it, and so his heart's broken. And this isn't a book he writes just for us to read thousands of years later, but it's a letter that he writes to these people that he loves dearly. And he spends the first three chapters telling them about how Jesus Christ had radically changed their lives, how they were literally spiritually dead, but because of Jesus Christ, they were made alive. They were without hope and without God, but because of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they've been transformed, and now they've been changed. Now they have all of God's resources. Now they've got a new identity. Now everything about them's been changed. Now they're reconciled with one another. In Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about this dividing wall being broken down, and it's not because of anything they've done. It's by God's grace. Through their faith, they come into this relationship that was planned out by God for his glory and their good. They would then reconcile them with other people. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's not slave or free. There's not male or female. They're connected with one another now at the gospel because of the cross. And then in chapter four, he starts to talk about practically because you've been so radically transformed internally, this should play out in every area of your life. Chapter five, verse 18, he gives us one of the most important and most misunderstood commandments in all of Christianity. 
In verse 18, he says, to be filled with the Spirit. Now, many times when you hear the passage preached that we're going to look at today that starts in verse 22, you get it ripped out of context, and people give you principles for living a better marriage. It's nice. You can improve your marriage that way, but you can never have the marriage that God intended for you to have without verse 18. This is central. It's key that you would be filled with the Spirit. So what does that mean? It means that you surrender your life completely and totally to God's ruling and reigning. And when you think you know the best thing to do, you take control off the throne of your life and you relinquish it to God so that then his spirit can guide you. And oftentimes he's going to tell you to do the opposite of what you think is the best thing to do. When you have goals for your life, you've got to trust that he's a heavenly father that actually knows best for you and that he will guide and direct you by his spirit. Now, when you start to take control, you quench the spirit and all of a sudden you do what seems right to you. And that doesn't go well for anybody. You can read it through the scripture. But when the spirit of God is filling you, that means that God is on the throne of your life, not work, not your spouse, which is a danger with going through a message like this. It's not because your husband's so great. It's not because your wife is so great. It's not because you have these goals for your kids. It's not because of work. It's not because of reputation. It's not because it's what the pastor said. It's because the spirit of God is filling your life and supernaturally empowering you to be able to do the very thing he's calling you to do. And he tells you after verse 18, five things that are characteristic of somebody's life when they're filled with the Spirit. I'll let you read that on your own. The fifth one is that we would be mutually submissive to one another. And then verse 22 through 33 is painting a picture of what does this look like in a marriage relationship. So for those of you who are not yet married, this is a great passage for a vision for marriage. For those of you who are married, I ask you to look at your own and ask yourself the question, does mine look like this? Because this is God's vision for my marriage. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the word, through the word, with the washing of water, through the word. And to present her to himself as, ra- as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, Each one of you also, and it's kind of a summary of all that we've just read. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So here you have a picture of both male and female, of the husband and the wife, and how they're to relate with one another in the marriage relationship. You also have a picture that's being painted parallel to this, the analogy of the relationship between Christ and the church. You have a picture of the gospel and how Jesus Christ redeems not only us individually, but redeems us corporately as a body of believers, and what the reason is for that. And what you have here is the picture that God's painting of his desire for marriage, and it's a picture of the gospel. And if your marriage is ever going to be a picture of the gospel, then each one of us, husband and wife, have a role to fulfill that can only be done by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. The things I'm going to tell you today, you cannot do apart from being surrendered to the Spirit of God. And what the husband must do is the husband must lead his wife with a Christ-like love. And we're going to talk about the husband's role first. The majority of the passage is dedicated to the husband And we're going to come to the wife in verses 22 through 24 at the end of the message. The husband must lead his wife with a Christ-like love. 
If you just read that passage with me, you may say, where does it say that the husband's supposed to lead the wife? Where do you even see leadership in this passage, Scott? Go back up to verse 23. Verse 23, when Paul's writing to the wives, he says, for the husband is the head, and you can underline that, the head of the wife. This is Christ is the head of the church. That word head is a leadership terminology. Headship and leadership could be used synonymously. I don't think I have to overemphasize or over-illustrate what headship means. If you have the head coach of a team, he's the leader of the team. Uh, a head of a university is the leader of the university. There might be other leadership roles, the board and different people, trustees and whatnot in a university, but the head of the university is the leader. The head of an organization, whether you call them CEO, president, owner, whatever you wanted to call them, they are the leader of the organization. So headship and leadership are synonymous with one another. The problem is most of us don't truly understand what leadership is. Many people, maybe you've held a role of leadership, but many people have never been a leader. And to truly be a leader, you recognize what leadership means. For a lot of people, they just see leadership and they see the limelight. They see somebody giving a speech or a press release, or they see somebody that seems like they get to call the shots, or it seems like everybody serves them. But what you don't understand is that real leadership, and anybody who's actually been a leader knows what this is. Real leadership means that you don't just get the press release, that you work behind the scenes on a continual basis and you are responsible for all the things that are taking place. Real leadership means accountability. Real leadership means you carry a heavy burden and weight. Real leadership doesn't mean you get to call the shots. A lot of times what real leadership means is you take the shots. And oftentimes no one knows that you're taking the shots. And the very people that are giving you the shots are oftentimes people that you've tried to lay your life down for the sake of, and they don't even realize it. You'll never be thanked for it. Real leadership means that you take initiative for the benefit of other people, and it's going to mean responsibility and accountability for you. And a lot of people don't want anything to do with that. What they really want is they want limelight, they want praise, they want all the things that they see from up front, and what they don't realize is the weight and the burden and the responsibility that comes with it. And husbands, that's what you have. You are a leader, whether you're mature enough for it, whether you're spiritual enough for it, whether you're gifted for it, whether you're talented for it, if you are married, you'll be held accountable for it. You are responsible for it. You are the one that must take the initiative and lead in your home. You're the head. You're the leader. And many of us, most of us, fail miserably at this. And we've been failing since the beginning. You go back to the fall and you see Adam. And do you realize that one of his key failures was his failure to receive and deliver on the role that God had given him to his wife? See, a lot of people don't think about the fact that Adam was actually supposed to step in and stop the things that were taking place in the book of Genesis. He was standing right there. Just think about it. God said to Adam, not to Adam and Eve, to Adam, here's this wonderful place. You live in perfect harmony with me. You live in perfect harmony with all of creation. There's one thing I don't want you to do. He had one commandment and he couldn't keep it. Don't eat of this tree. And then it was his responsibility, and he would be held accountable to relay that information to his wife and then help guide her in not making that decision. And then what happens, just imagine what happens. There's this snake that walks up. That's normal, apparently, in a perfect situation, and starts talking to them. <laughs> Husbands, little tip. If a snake ever starts talking to your wife, intervene at that moment. Adam does not do that. Instead, the snake starts to tempt Eve. They say, this, this tree is good to eat of. And surely if you eat of it, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. There's like a little bit of truth in there. And then she sees it. And do you notice, have you ever noticed that Adam was standing right there the whole time? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. 
I'll put it up on the screen. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was standing right there. He ate it. So he stood there passively the entire time while his wife makes a decision that will be the spiritual ruin not only of their family, but for families thereafter. And guess what happens after that? If you continue to read the Genesis account, it's a great story. What ends up happening is that immediately they realize they were naked. <laughs> up until that point, they just thought there was a cool breeze blowing through Eden. <laughs> they realize that they're naked and they cover themselves because now they know shame and now they know condemnation. Now they know guilt because now they know sin. And they hide. And then God comes looking. You know who God comes looking for, right? It's not them. It's him. But wait, she's the one... Yeah, that's what he says, as he tries to shrug off his responsibility and his accountability and even tries to blame it on God. Adam, you're the leader. What's going on here? How'd you know you were naked? He comes looking for Adam because Adam is responsible and Adam is accountable and husbands, you are responsible and you will be held accountable. And you can come up with reasons and justifications and all kinds of other stuff, but you have a role and it's a leadership role in your home. And that means you take the initiative that means that you will be responsible. That means that God will hold you accountable. So how are you doing? <laughs> Maybe a better question would be, why? So how is he doing? And would it be the same answer? Because, man, do you realize we have a battle to fight here? And one of the things that I think is incredibly ironic is that so many men would long to fight a battle. It's why you get all riled up when you, you watch football. You love football as a hand-to-hand -hand combat that's taking place. Or some of you like ultimate fighting championships. Or maybe you watch movies, the Born Identity movies, and you're like, yeah, like I could do that. You could fight your way out of a wet paper bag. But you, you think you could do that, and, and you want to fight. Sometimes there's movies I'll watch, and I'll think, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'll watch Remember the Titans sometimes. There's a scene where the assistant coach gives a speech, and I'm ready to go play football again. I mean, I probably couldn't you know, run the thing. But at any rate, I, I, I'm ready to fight. And we have a battle to fight here. It's not coincidence that this passage on marriage comes right before Ephesians chapter 6, which is all about a spiritual battle. You're in a battle. Here's the problem for us, men. It's not a battle with our hands. We don't fight it with a gun. It's not won by a bottom line or a spreadsheet. You have a battle that needs to be fought, and you are losing. And I read somebody this week who said, if 50 to 75% of GM or Ford vehicles failed in the early days of their existence... We would be very intentional about doing something about that. But we don't with marriages that fail at a greater than 50% rate. The guy who said this wrote it in 1973, and he was a secular humanist. He even recognizes that we have a problem here. And what we're supposed to do, men, I'll tell you, it's not organize a task force on marriage. It's not legislate that everybody has to love their wives in a certain way. It's that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are to fight this battle and take the initiative for our wives because we're going to be held responsible for it. We're going to be accountable for it. Here's the problem. God's already laid out the plan, and we can't do it. It's the plan's laid out. It begins in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as, you can underline that, just as Christ loved the church. He's not ambiguous about this. You do it exactly the way that Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for her. And so the problem for us is this is not a battle that's fought with our hands. This isn't a battle that's fought with our minds and our business acumen or our ability to fix problems. This is a battle that's fought with the heart. And if the truth be told, most of us feel ill-equipped to love like this. You can't do it, men. 
And so if you have a Superman complex, I'm telling you right now, the first step, the key for you to recognize, for you to be able to do this is to recognize your inability to do it. You cannot do it. It goes back up to verse 18. The only way this is going to happen is the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit, which means your life needs to be surrendered to God, that God sits on the throne of your life, and the things I tell you are not just good principles for you to try out this week. The only way that it will happen is if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and he's ruling and reigning in your life, and the only way you can love this way is because you've been loved this way. And what we see in this passage is we see five different ways, characteristics of this kind of love. I don't oftentimes give you lists, but I'm going to give you a list today. And the first one that we see is this is a, a selfless and sacrificial love. It says here in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you see it from the very part there where he even uses the word love. This idea that a husband would love a wife like this is so revolutionary in this culture. The idea that, that Paul even uses this word that he uses in this passage would strike all the listeners when they'd read this passage of Scripture. Because it's really originally written in Greek language. There are two words that would have been very natural to use in writing about a love that a husband has for a wife. The one word would have been a, a sexual, passionate love, an eros love. Love your wives, husbands, with an eros kind of love. You love her with passion. Or a phileo love, which is a family affection type love. But that's not what Paul says here. He says, you love your wife with an agapao kind of love. Like some of you have heard the word agape before. That names of lots of different ministries and things like that. The verb is agapao. And it's a, a, the kind of love that actually puts the other person first. Now, to understand that, you've got to understand culturally what the view of women was at this time. Women were objects. They were for your pleasure, men. In fact, not only were they just practically that way, like we treat them many times with pornography and the way we put them on images and magazines and all that kind of stuff, but they were legally defined as possessions. They were your object. Even religious people, the Jewish people, they had a prayer. Men that would pray in the morning, men would oftentimes pray, thank you, God, that I'm not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Gives you an idea of their view of women. And the Greeks, they were worse. The Greeks had a saying, prostitutes for pleasure, concubines for cohabitation. Wives, raise your kids. Wives, you had a role, and it was to please a man, do a function, and get out of the way. If a man was caught in adultery, the wife couldn't do anything about it. If a woman was caught in adultery, he could have her stoned on the spot. No trial necessary. Women had no rights. They were viewed as objects. In Rome, it was worse. In Roman culture, you can read their history, there was not a recorded divorce for the first 500 years of Rome. And then when it started to become normal, people would marry as many as 20, 30 times in a lifetime. Because you didn't marry for any reason other than either financial gain, sexual pleasure, someone to raise your kids. It was just, it was said by one philosopher that women married to divorce and divorced to marry. You divorce so you could get to the next marriage. And that's what the day was like when Paul writes these words. So think about the fact that he says, husbands, you put her first. You love your wife with the kind of love that thinks about her best interest first. That's what agapao very literally means. It means that you put the interest of another ahead of your own. That the intentions and the actions that you have are actually for their best interest. Can you imagine how revolutionary that was in this culture? Sometimes Christianity gets identified as if it's bad towards women. It's not bad towards women at all. It's incredibly liberating towards women. Never before did anyone even heard an idea that you would actually treat a woman like a person. Not even the religious people of that day. But not only that, you esteem her above yourself. That's revolutionary. And men, that's what we're called to do. 
that you'd love your wife with a selfless and sacrificial love where you're actually thinking about her best interest ahead of your own. Man, how are you doing? You can't do this on your own. It's not natural. You treat her like somebody who's supposed to do things for you. You treat her naturally like somebody who's supposed to make you happy in life, who's supposed to fulfill some dreams you had, who's supposed to do these things. And you put her in a seat that only God's intended to sit on, and it will crush her. But when God's on the throne of your life, he supernaturally enables you to do the very things he called you to do. This is his plan for marriage, is that you would love her ahead of yourself. That you would love her with a selfless and sacrificial love, but you don't only love her with that. You go on in the passage, verses 26 to 27, you love her with a disciple-making kind of love. That's the second kind of love we see in this passage, a disciple-making kind of love. Verse 26, the reason why you love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her is to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. This is what Christ does for the church. Amen, you're responsible for opening the word in your home. You're responsible for loving her like Christ loved the church, and he loved the church in a way to make her holy, to make her beautiful, verse 27, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And what we're talking about in beauty is an inward beauty that comes as she becomes more and more like Jesus. She becomes sanctified, which means to be set apart for Jesus Christ and men. You will be held responsible and accountable for the spiritual development of your wife. That means that you need to have a mission in your marriage to connect her to Jesus more and more, to open the word with her, to be praying for her. As you put her ahead of yourself, you pray for her. When she starts to get off, and everybody gets off at times, when she starts to get off emotionally, spiritually, physically, you remind her of the fundamental truths. I'm not saying you have to be a spiritual giant here. You remind her of what Jesus Christ did when he saved her. You remind her of forgiveness You remind her of grace. You remind her of identity in Jesus Christ. You remind her of the sovereignty of God. You remind her of the power and the promises of God, and that's the very thing we're to cling to in those difficult times. You remind her of what it is to walk by faith, which is to believe the promises and actually follow the promises. You remind her of the purpose of your marriage, which is to glorify Jesus Christ. Men, you will be held accountable to love your wife with a disciple-making kind of love. So how are you doing? You're responsible to connect her to Jesus. Now, she can reject that. I understand some women won't want anything to do with that. Maybe some of you are married to non-believers. But you continue to lead with a Christ-like, selfless love to win your wife to Jesus Christ. You pray for her continually. You pray with her if she'll allow you to. You open the word in your home, and if she doesn't want to hear you quoting John 3.16, you can still share the truth of it, about how God loves us. Because he loves each one of us, he wants us to be his children. He has a desire to know you and share the gospel as you live your life. Man, you're responsible for that. You'll be held accountable for that. You have to take the initiative for that. For some of you, it means some very practical things. Like it might mean you need to get up in the morning, make your wife coffee so that she's going. Or you might need to take the kids on Saturday and take them to breakfast somewhere so she can spend some time praying for you, praying for those kids. Uh, You might have to do some tangible things, but you're going to be held accountable for a disciple-making kind of love. Not only that, but a neighborly love. Look at the next verse. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And what we have here is like the second greatest commandment. You know, the greatest commandment, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The interesting thing is there are some men that will go out of their way to love somebody at the office to demonstrate Christ or to love somebody in their neighborhood to demonstrate the love of Christ, and they won't even open a door for their wife. I want you to do common courtesy stuff for their wife. Your neighbor, your closest neighbor is your wife. 
And it might sound like a sterile term to call your wife your neighbor, but if you read the book Song of Songs, I dare you, if you read the book Song of Songs, then repeatedly the husband in that passage, the beloved, calls his lover his neighbor. Your nearest and dearest neighbor is your wife. And that commandment still applies to your marriage, that you'd love your wife as you'd love your neighbor because you love your wife as you love yourself. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. Leviticus 19, this is an old command, but it applies still to marriages. Husbands, you love your wives with a neighborly kind of love. And the next one is really a continuation of that one. And you love her with an attentive kind of love. It says, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it. And some of you might have that he cherishes and he nourishes it. Just as Christ does the church. So this is, again, to be a picture of Christ and the church, that you would love your wife as you'd love yourself because you love yourself. And some people say, well, that's not true for me. You know, you self-deprecation is kind of your shtick or, or maybe you just don't feel good about your body's not the same as it was when you were 18 or low self-image or whatever it is and you don't think you love yourself. I promise you, you love yourself. I'll prove it. You ate last night. You went to sleep last night. If it's hot, you change clothes. You turn the air conditioning on. If it's cold, you put a blanket on. You take care of your body <laughs> in some regard. Maybe you're not an exercise guru, and maybe it's not all that kind of stuff, but you care for yourself. When you have a scratch, you will itch it. You love yourself. And one of the ways that's made evident, according to this passage, is you're very attentive to your own needs. When you have needs, you feed and you care for yourself. You nurture and you cherish yourself. In fact, it's interesting, this language is actually nursery language of a mother loving her baby. For those of you who have children or have had small children, do you, you think about what a mom is like when she's nursing a baby? And they're on, either on the bottle or, or she's still breastfeeding that child and the nurturing care, the provision, the protection that takes place there. She's incredibly attentive to that child's needs. We have a 10-month-old at our house, and I'll tell you, my wife and I, at the end of the day, we'll be down in our bedroom, and we'll be talking, and all of a sudden, she'll say, do you hear that? And I'll, I don't hear anything. What are you talking about? And the baby's crying, and I'm not sure if the baby cries at like a frequency only dogs can hear or, or what. Well, my wife thinks that I'm deaf. Next thing I know, she's gone, she's upstairs, and the baby was crying. How did she know? Because she's attentive to that baby's needs. When our kids fall down, we've got other kids that are a little bit older, they'll fall down in a group of like 40 or 50 people. They pop up, they want one person. Guess who? I could be standing next to them. They want mom. It's because mom is attentive to their needs. She cares for and she protects those children. She provides for them. There's a tender care there of nourishment and cherishing. And men, are you man enough to love your wife with a motherly kind of love? And that might sound like an oxymoron to some of you. I challenge you to read a book of John Piper. It's called This Momentary Marriage. He actually titles the chapters uh, for a man's role as a husband. He titles them Lionhearted and Lamb-like. And he talks about Jesus Christ as a picture of manhood who was the Lion of Judah. It's a fierce, intentional kind of love. But he was the Lamb of God who has laid his life down. It's the most tender, caring picture you can paint. And he's both. Amen. Do you have the courage and boldness to actually love your wife with an attentive kind of love? Will you care for her needs in that gentle, tender way? That's what you're called to. That's what you'll be held responsible for. That's what you'll be held accountable to by God. And you can't do it. It requires you surrendering your life to the Spirit of God. It's an attentive kind of love. When she hurts, who's she going to? Is it you? 
And if not, where's she going? Because you can't fix it, but she should be coming to you and you pointing her to Jesus. You pointing to her hope. You pointing her to healing. You pointing her to forgiveness. You pointing her to his care. Fifth kind of love you see in this passage is an unbreakable love. And here, Paul quotes actually a very old verse. It's from the very beginning, Genesis 2. It's for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united. They'll be cemented together, literally. Be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God joins two people together. They become one. And what God put together, he intended, would never be taken apart. And I understand that, that a majority, perhaps, of people that will hear this word have been divorced. That was never God's intention. God's plan was always that the two would become one, that it would be an unbreakable kind of love. Even when there's problems, that, the, that it would be a picture of his love for his bride by a husband. In fact, it's interesting, if you read through the scriptures, when he talks about covenanted relationships with God and Israel in the Old Testament and with Jesus in the church in the New Testament, what he talks about when people go off and they do their own thing is it's spiritual adultery. And so when people put something else on the throne of their lives, and you could put in our place work, reputation, money, sex, whatever you want to put there, he calls that adultery. And you know what he does? He continues to take them back over and over again. And our marriages are to be a picture of that unbreakable kind of love, continuing to forgive, continuing to bring back, continuing to reconcile kind of love. And so I don't know what your story is for those of you who've been divorced, but the scripture does say there are a couple exceptions for biblical divorce, for if you have adultery, a continuous, repetitive type of adultery, it's permitted that you divorce your wife. Or if a non-believer abandons a believer, it's permitted that they be divorced. Not God's plan, though. He says the reason why this is allowed is because of our hard hearts. It's by his grace. His plan is that we have an unbreakable kind of love. That's why when the two are joined together, they're cemented together. The two become one. And if you ever try to break something that's cemented apart, it's a mess. There's always broken pieces. God can heal the pieces, but it's not his plan. His plan is that you be in an unbreakable covenant with one another. And men, you will be held accountable for this. You are the leader. You have the responsibility. You take the initiative. You will be held responsible. That is your role. And wives, you have a role as well. And the passage here talks about your role. And it talks about your role as, in verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Verses 22 through 24. Wives, your role is a role of willing submissiveness to your husband. You must follow. If he's going to be the leader, you must follow with a willing, and that's a key word, submissiveness to your husbands. Now, I think that wives are just as confused today as husbands are, about their role in marriage. In fact, this week, as I was studying some of these things, I was looking at different demonstrations in our, in our culture of women in marriage. And there were two stories I saw that couldn't be starker contrast with one another. There was one story of a woman named Nadine, and you can look this up online. She was on Anderson Cooper's show. Um, she ended up telling her story about how she married herself. So if you're Googling it, you can talk about Nadine, woman who married herself. And, and it'll pop up, I promise. Click on the first video that's there, and you'll hear her story about why it is that she married herself. Now, the more I watched this, the more confused I became. Okay, I don't know what legislation people are going to want to talk about for this situation. I'm not sure who's the husband, who's the wife, how all this stuff works. But she said essentially what she was doing was she was celebrating herself. <laughs> yes, I don't doubt that that would happen without any kind of biblical worldview whatsoever. And no doubt there would be incredible confusion. And she said that she's responsible to make herself happy, and so she's embracing that responsibility. 
And they even showed, as it continued to go on, her going on a date with herself. And she, you know, kissed the mirror and said stuff about how her wife wants her to eat bacon and different things. And I got, like I said, more and more confused the more and more I watched this situation. An incredibly self-centered situation. Certainly not the role there. I got questions. If she goes on a date with someone else, is she cheating on herself? You know, if she doesn't want to get married some other day, does she have to get a divorce? I don't know how all that works. But she actually had a ceremony. She actually goes on a date, and she is married to herself. Then there was another woman. You can watch her story at DesiringGod.com. Her name was Larissa. And Larissa was in a situation where she was dating very seriously her boyfriend for about 10 months while they were in college. And they were in college in 2005. And as they were dating, uh, they were serious. They were very intentional about the dating process. And, and her boyfriend at the time was named Ian. He was looking at wedding rings and, and had a plan for them to get married. And when they were home from college one summer and he was working an extra job, he got in an accident and suffered a traumatic brain injury. And they weren't even married at this moment. And she could have easily just moved on. And he has to figure that out. And she's going to do, go do what makes her happy. And she's going to do a life that, that she's dreamed of living. And instead, she sees an opportunity to love this man that she's planning on giving her wife to. And so she starts to help with his rehabilitation. He gets to the place where he's able to verbally communicate again. Not at the same level, but he's able to verbally communicate again. And they decide they're going to get married. She said in her premarital counseling, she read that book, the John Piper book, This Momentary Marriage. And they were going through it together. And, and Piper talks about in that book that a husband has some primary responsibilities and some secondary responsibilities. And she said he can't do any of the secondary stuff. He can't work. He can't make a meal. She has to give him his meds. But he can do the primary thing, which is lead her spiritually. And she talked about it. And in the video, you can see, if you go to DesiringGod.com, she talks about how when she gets off and she starts getting down a tangent, whether it's believing lies or emotionally off or whatever it is, that he reminds her of those fundamental truths of the gospel, fundamental truths of the faith. And she submits to his leadership. Because that's the God-ordained role that a wife has in a marriage. That's what our passage says here. Wives, submit to your husbands just as the church submits to Christ. That's your role in the picture that's being painted. Now, that word submission is like a dirty word in our culture. And so people think it means that you're not equal. It's some issue of inferiority and superiority. That's not true. In fact, if you understand the leadership role that a husband has, I'll tell you what, you shouldn't want that. <laughs> be held accountable and responsible for that, but we know because of the curse that a woman's desire will be to rule over her husband. That's what the scripture says. Nobody's supposed to be ruling over anybody in this passage. The husband is never commanded in this passage to exercise his headship and authority on the wife. Instead, he's to sacrificially love his wife with a service, Christ-like kind of love. He gives his life for the sake of his wife. That's what it is to lead. And wives, your role is not one of inferiority, you're still equal. The gospel still says that we're all one in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 still applies. There's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. But there's diversity in the body. Just as there's diversity in our human bodies, there's diversity in the church body, and different people play different roles. And God has ordained leadership, authoritative roles throughout society and in the marriage relationship. The president, everybody in our country can't be the president. He has a role. Police officers have a role. Teachers have a role. Leaders in universities have a role. Leaders in churches, elders and pastors have a role. And people can say, well, I obey God. Well, if you don't obey those roles, you're not obeying God because he's the one who's ordained these things, regardless of who the people are. And in your marriage relationship, it's your husband. Regardless of what you think of him as an individual, you have a role to play. And what I tell people when I'm doing premarital counseling is that marriage is a team sport. Everybody can't be the quarterback on a football team. 
or nobody's going to catch the ball. Everybody can't be the wide receiver. Nobody's going to throw the ball. Everybody's got to play their role. We talk about it as a church staff. Everybody's got a role on the church staff. Otherwise, we're all, a bunch of people are wasting their time. In the church body, we all have different functions, different gifts, different roles we play in the body of Christ. Otherwise, we're, a bunch of people are out of their giftedness and they're wasting their time. And so we all have different roles that we are to play. And it's not an issue of inferiority and superiority because you don't think Jesus is inferior to anyone, do you? He was subject to the Father, but the two are one. It's not an issue of equality. It's an issue of role. And Jesus is inferior, or he's not inferior here. He is subject to the Father. Not an issue of inferiority or superiority. An issue of role in the Trinity. If you don't believe it, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 28. Read Philippians chapter 2, that he took on the very nature of a servant, became obedient to the Father, obedient to the point of death. He's subject to the Father. He only does what the Father tells him to do throughout the Gospels. He's in a submissive role, but he's one with the Father. Wives, the two become one. You're not inferior to your husband, but you do have a different role, and it's a role of submission. And if he's going to lead, someone has to follow. That's just the way that leadership works. And some of you will say to yourselves, yeah, but he, that's the problem. He doesn't lead. Well, the passage doesn't say it's based on him. Read verses 23 through 24, the whole thing. There's no condition based on the husband. It says that wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, not as if he is Lord, but as unto the Lord. This is your role in presenting the gospel. What if your husband's not even a believer? Well, the Bible covers that too. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Peter tells wives this, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your own husbands, not to all men, not to all husbands, but to your husbands, so that if any of them don't believe, so you're still supposed to do it even if they don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. This is your picture of the gospel. When we talk about the relationship that Jesus has with the church, your role is a submissive role. That's not an inferiority issue, but it is your role. And we each have one. And none of us can fulfill them apart from the filling of the Spirit of God. When I do premarital counseling and I talk about team sports stuff, I oftentimes go to the Ecclesiastes passage where it says that two are better than one, but a cord of three strands cannot easily be broken. Husband and wife have a role in the marriage, and so does Jesus Christ. It's that three that make it a true biblical marriage where Christ is ruling and reigning and we're submitting our lives to him as each one fulfills a role that we could never fulfill apart from the empowering of his spirit. And so how are you doing? As you think about your marriage, those of you who are married, what picture would it be? Would it be a picture of the gospel? Would it tell the story of someone loving a messed up, broken person who many times doesn't even deserve that love, sometimes doesn't receive that love, but the husband intentionally laying his life down for the wife, the wife respecting, submitting to, willingly, her husband? Is it a picture of the gospel? And if not, what needs to change? What weaknesses are there? And I ask you, if you had to recommit to your vows today, would you do it? And some of you, your vows may have simply been for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, promises to God. But if you had to commit to having a gospel-centered marriage, would you do it? I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. In a moment, I'm going to say some vows. I'm going to ask you, if you're married, that you'd Commit to these vows. And maybe you've been married for a month. Maybe you've been married for 20 years. Maybe you've been married for 40 years. I don't know how long you've been married. Maybe you got married on Saturday. Well, we'll redo it. Only if you're willing, though. And I'll tell you what the vows are. The vows are, because you haven't had time to read them, 
The vows are, I wrote this week, just some of, in my own words, Ephesians chapter 5 stuff. It talks about the responsibility and accountability that a husband has. and talks about the role that a wife has. And it's making a promise before God that you would commit to this. Now, some of you have never committed to having a gospel-centered marriage. You've made some good promises to one another. You've made some promises based on some verses, but never with this kind of vision. And I ask you to commit to that. Some of you have done this. I ask you to recommit to that. And in a moment, I'll, I'll read some of them. And if you're sitting next to your spouse, you might just hold his or her hand and grab a hold of their hand and just squeeze it as you sit there. If you're not sitting by each other, that's fine. You can still recite these vows back to one another. If they're in another room, you can just say them out loud and talk about it afterwards. We'll hand them out after the service. But let me say this. Some of you might be hesitant to do this because you feel like we don't do anything like this. That would be so hypocritical to say that we're going to do this. I want to challenge you. You can do it today. And some of you might feel like my marriage is too far gone. There's no way. Let me remind you of what the gospel does in your life individually. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And maybe some of your marriages don't have any life to them anymore. He made us alive. He can do that in your marriage. He reconciles us to one another and to himself. He can do that in any marriage. We were without hope and without God. And some of your marriages seem hopeless and they're certainly godless. But he can intervene by the power of the gospel. But what it takes is your willingness to surrender. He's already done the work. He's already there. He is already present. He's already made the promises. He's already set the expectation. He's done everything he needs to do. What you need to do is surrender to him. If you're willing to do that today, I would ask you too, regardless of where your marriage is, to recommit in these vows. We'll put them up on the screens. I'll say them to the wise first, and I'll just state the phrase, and if you desire to do this, you can say it back out loud. Wives, I vow to honor and respect my husband. You can say it back if you want to, honey. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm teasing. But wives, I vow to honor and respect my husband. As an act unto the Lord, I promise to be faithful to him, to speak well of him, and to help him lead our family. I vow to willingly submit to his leadership. I believe our marriage is to be a picture of the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For lost sinners like me, I promise to submit to the Spirit of God and allow Him to lead me in my relationship with my husband. Understanding we both have a mission of sharing the love of Jesus with the lost world. And that knowing part of that mission is uniquely carried out in our relationship. And husbands, if you'd like to say these vows, it says this, I vow to love my wife as Jesus loves his church. I promise to be faithful to her, to protect her and to provide for her. This next section's long, but the passage has a lot to say to you men says this, I believe our marriage is about more than what we see on a daily basis. I believe our marriage is to be a picture of the gospel seen by how we relate to one another. I realize I have a high calling to love my wife like Jesus Christ loves the church.
I vow to give myself to my wife. The same kind of selflessness Jesus demonstrated in giving himself for me. I promise to submit to the Spirit of God as I lead my wife spiritually. To present her before Jesus as a beautiful woman without wrinkle or blemish as close to Jesus as I can possibly lead her. I vow to love my wife as Jesus loves me. I promise to live in a marriage on mission to share Jesus with the lost world by sacrificially and selflessly loving my wife and looking out for her best interest above my own. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that you would bind those vows in our hearts. For those of us who are married, Father God, I pray that you would demonstrate the gospel, the love of your son, Jesus Christ, through our marriage, the way that we treat one another, the way that we fulfill the roles you've called us to. I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit and enable us to do these things as we surrender to you, Father. Father, I pray for those who are yet to be married, that you would paint a vision for their marriage today. I pray for those who have been through divorce, maybe even recently through divorce, that you would heal those wounds by the power of the cross that you'd bring reconciliation where that's still a possibility. Father God, I pray that you would break our hearts for one another and for love for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I love you, and the vows that we just said will be available to you as you exit today. Thank you so much.